0: This is
1: World Beyond War, a new podcast.
0: Welcome to episode 32 of the World Beyond War podcast, and the first one in 2022, a year that's already stressing a lot of us out. Because as we speak, there seems to be a march towards war between USA and Russia over Ukraine. And even if we can reasonably hope to avert this disaster, It is shocking to be an anti-war activist right now and watch our planet tumble towards the same kind of disaster that we have suffered so many times before. Well, let's talk about it. I'm Mark Elliott-Stein, your host from Brooklyn, New York, and I'm excited to introduce today's guest, a new member of World Beyond War's Board of Directors. Kuhan Pakmander is a deeply involved peace activist, and she's a board member of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, and part of the Code Pink working group, China Is Not Our Enemy. She served as campaign director of the Asia Pacific Program at the International Forum on Globalization, has written for The Nation, The Progressive, Foreign Policy in Focus, and other publications, and is co-author of the book, the Super Ferry Chronicles, Hawaii's Uprising Against Militarism, Commercialism, and the Desecration of the Earth. Hi, Kohan. Thanks for being here. Hello. Kohan, I know you're on the West Coast of the United States, and you focus on the problems of militarism in the Asia-Pacific region. Our most urgent topic today is a crisis in Europe between Ukraine and Russia that you're involved with that China is not our enemy campaign, so of course, watching the rising state of war between competing superpowers is nothing new to you. It's nearly as bad between the USA and China, and there are so many other crises in that region. Before we dive into the actual situations at hand, Kuhan, I want to ask you to tell us about yourself. You're a very busy peace activist, but how did you get to be a peace activist, and what does this mean in your life?
1: Hmm. Well, Mark, that is, for me, A very complex question because there was no single one aha moment. And it's only quite recently that I started calling myself a peace activist or thinking of myself as a peace activist. And yet you would think I would have been one early on when you consider that my mother, my grandmother on my on my maternal side were both Quakers both involved in the anti-atomic testing in the Marshall Islands. My grandmother was on the original committee to publicize the golden rule back in the 50s, the Great. little catch that wow. took off. My, my mom, um, you know, used to write letters as a teenager to protest the atomic testing you would think that that might have something to do with it, but it never really triggered anything. Or maybe the fact that my father was a refugee from the Korean war, you would think that might have something to do with it. In his stories growing up of the dire hunger that he suffered and scrambling after sea rations tossed from a jeep of American GIs passing by and 30 kids diving upon it in a feeding frenzy to fight for that one tablespoon of the equivalent of spam. You'd think that might have something to do with it, but, (laughs) you know, I guess it did too, or just growing up in Korea, in post-war Korea, growing up in Guam, you know, Mm -hmm. where we were always not military, but in the presence of severe, heavy militarization. I mean, these are two of the most militarized places on earth. Being 10 years old at night and hearing the B-52s in Guam taking off to bomb Vietnam. I mean, war was always there and war protesting was always there from Mm. my mom's side but none of it really clicked. I thought I was going to be a storyteller, a filmmaker, an artist, a writer. It never became, um, I never thought of myself as a peace activist, but it started, well, you know, my I started to get a little bit activated when I married my first husband, who uh, received grant money. Um, to get his PhD in uh, computer science from Carnegie Mellon, and mm. he got a stipend that was actually the result of Re- Ronald Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative.
0: Oh wow! W- which okay.
1: he basically designed the first drones, and he's won. Okay. He had won the Artificial Intelligence Olympics like three years. And I never really thought about it or paid attention. We had met at film school at USC. And when we did graduate work, I went into screenwriting at NYU. And he sort of went in the technical direction. And he went into computer science. But we didn't really start dating until we were in grad school. And I guess it, that that had some influence, too, when the thought that we were living in Malibu in a Home overlooking Johnny Carson's and Madonna's house, mm-hmm. um, that was being paid for by tax dollars. That was Star Wars defense money, which mostly went to LSD and Grateful Dead concerts.
0: <laughs> I, will I have mean, to talk about the Grateful Dead—that's a different podcast. The,
1: that whole that whole world and, and the kind of logic that that had a profound impact on me that that, that was how money for quote unquote defense was being spent. But yes. anyway, I went along with I mean, we after getting divorced I made a I made a transgender musical about the perils of digital technology. Um and
0: okay. what, what was it called? Virtue.
1: Well,
0: wait, I will look Can't- for it. By the way, can, I just want to mention, Kuhan. Um, I also began my career right out of college working for the U.S. military. So,
1: uh-huh.
0: um, yeah, I did that for about ten months. Well, um, that's
1: where the money I is.
0: The conscience before I realized that it was wrong. So mm-hmm. many of us that way and that was during the presidency of ronald reagan so it was a hole that many of us fell into that we were smart enough to dig ourselves out of but anyway go on
1: some of you were and um many weren't and in any case so that you know all of this background all played a part but i never really put it together until recently i mean comparative Comparatively recently, I remember I had written a book called uh, with my husband called uh, The Super Ferry Chronicles, and it chronicled how this project, this huge boondoggle was being pushed on the people of Hawaii back in 2007. Um, they were selling it as an inter-island ferry that would transport baseball teams from island to island and and whatnot. But actually, it was a front for um it, uh, for a company that was doing sea trials, competing for a uh, a contract for a huge military contract oh, worth billions. Wow. And by getting the ferry in the water as a fake um, inner island ferry, they mm-hmm. were able to get ahead, ahead of the competitors and, and win the contract. So it was kind of an expose. And after I'd done that and written an article in The Nation about that, one of the top, uh, one of the big Native Hawaiian activists there asked me to go to Guam and and help them organize and they had not yet um blossomed into the current uh demilitarization movement and cultural renaissance that's going on today they had not yet done that they were still it was like a sleepy a still sleeping huge tiger of, of uh, you know of a movement uh so i went and it and it reminded me so much of... I I, I I was reminded of the great beauty there that also profoundly impacted me in connecting to living completely in harmony with the planet in fear of the planet. In, in I mean, the ocean, some of the stinging corals, you know, I stepped on a stonefish and almost died, but the whole, the biodiversity, the kaleidoscopic beauty right. of it. And 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 fighting to save that and the same thing with Jeju Island I then went so so it was more like I started getting really activated and and p- going to protests and rallies and direct action efforts as an envir- mostly as an environmentalist nice but um I think the aha moment it all came together when I went to Jeju Island to support the people there protesting the Can construction you what
0: Jeju Island is about
1: Yeah yeah I will that was um in South Korea there's a really beautiful island that's quite different from the rest of the Korean peninsula it Till very recently was still a matriarchal shamanistic society. But what makes it particularly special is that there's a current that comes up from the the South Asia called the Tsunim... Anyway, it's a very warm current. So you've got incredibly beautiful multicolored and very biodiverse coral forests down there that are very unique to the Northern Hemisphere, but it's because of this huge current of warm water from the South. And it's a UNESCO, uh, heritage. what do you call it? Bio-Heritage Reserve. Mm-hmm. And that is also very strategically placed in terms of where the United States wanted to put a, a, a Navy base with state-of-the-art
0: oh.
1: uh, Aegis missile, carrying warships
0: right. oh my God. and
1: dredge they dredged the coral and there was an enormous protest movement that was i considered in a way very successful because they delayed construction by about two years because they were blocking the gate for the trucks to go through with prayer sessions um, every day several of them and a thousand cops were basically camped out for years, I mean so, it was very expensive to build this, and now, of course the I don't know if it's Samsung who was the contractor to build the base or the government, but the villagers themselves are being sued for delaying oh no the progress of Samsung yeah but that was that was the experience. Where it all coalesced, where all my life experiences came together, and I understood that because mm. these people were, for them, there was no division between environment and human rights and protection of of um, people's livelihoods, people's culture, people's way of life, the planet, the water. Right. It was the they had very pure water there. The the base has been built, they covered over with concrete, about a kilometer long piece of coast that is like a rocky lava coast, much like the Kona Coast, which is the west coast of the Big Island, just like looks like a lava moonscape. But it's very unique because it has um, springs, freshwater springs throughout. And some people were sent from Evian where they have the bottled water and they tested and said, wow, this is like this water is more nutritious, cleaner than Evian water. This is special water. Well, the whole thing's been paved over. Now there is oh, no, a no, Navy base there and the oh, no. coral reef has been dredged. And what was once a UNESCO bio reserve has been severely desecrated and now they're expanding like they do with all military installations and building a nearby s- second airport, roads, the water polluted. It's, it just goes on and on. But being there, Mark, what was so special about it for me, and that's when I started calling myself a peace activist, was the selflessness of the people, the warmth of the people, and in in the face of so much tragedy, what they gained out of that was a resilient solidarity. So when Mm -hmm. I'm there, and many people have also said this, you feel like you are in the hand of God. You really feel like you are experiencing what we've heard all our lives God is supposed to feel like, and I'd never experienced that before.
0: Yes, yes. Wow, that is great, Kuhan. Thank you. It's also nice to hear some nature words on this podcast. You know, we've done episodes on technology and on refugee crises, but to just hear these words, you know, it's nice. Really? Um,
1: yeah, I'm. I'm kind of amazed how how um, environmentalists so rarely talk about. Uh, war war as a problem in militarism and how rare in in the United States, because you hear it in Asia and the Pacific constantly, they're inseparable.
0: Here in New York City, before COVID began, I began working with a group that's part of Extinction Rebellion New York City Mm. Mm. or Extinction Rebellion New York that was a tech working group. And we were really getting something going and, you know, I guess I dropped out after COVID happened because I was attending in person, but we mm-hmm. would have 150 people at a meeting about technology, um, militarism. And, um, because technology is sort of a third leg of that chair, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I do feel like we, we were getting that going, um, What do you, when you bring the message to your environmentalist co-workers and allies and partners, when you bring the message that militarism is the number one, you know, irritant in the human, in the, you know, planetary body, Mm. what do they, what do they, how do they respond?
1: Well, in the past, they've sort of sloughed it off. Like, wow, that's too hard of a beast to slay. But now, in the face of everything we're going through with with the IPCC reports really spelling out how dire the climate catastrophe crisis is and the Mm -hmm. extinction crisis, now people are engaged by the information and by the news and that's new and they are wanting to get involved and they are fighting their own cognitive dissonance because so many people come from military backgrounds. But even so, you know, I know a lot of peace activists that became peace activists because of their military backgrounds, because of their PTSD in their family or their Mm -hmm. own PTSD.
0: I would say that veterans are very well represented in the peace movement. Very well, as you know, yes. right? No lack of veterans in the peace movement. There is mm. a lack, I would say, of conscious environmentalists who just don't realize that this is a key. This is a key, um, a necessary key. But, you know, as I said, I went to like Extinction Rebellion meetings and delivered this message, and it was very eagerly heard. mm there's so many other messages. So, you know, and we're, we're all we're right. We, we, there are other keys, you know, capitalism. Um, let's move on. I want to talk about what's going on in two, two areas in which my country, um, I always, whenever I describe myself as a citizen of the United States, I point out that this is not by choice. I have no choice. This is where I was born. It's where my family lives. So the country that I have no choice but to live in, Um, is obviously provoking war with Russia and with China. Um, With Russia, it has recently become a a global crisis over Ukraine and poor Ukraine stuck in the middle. I I think it's tragic that many people who consider themselves so-called American patriots think they would be doing Ukraine a favor by escalating to war with Russia Meanwhile, I do not believe that Putin intends to invade. I believe that this is a hysteria whipped up by the United States um, media, by the Mm. New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, MSNBC, Fox News. um, And I hate to loop them all in together. But when it comes to reporting about China or Russia or Iran or Israel, um, they all just or Venezuela or Colombia or Bolivia, they all just deliver the, the problem mm. straight to the Pentagon. And um, this is a major crisis right now. In fact, as we speak, many people think that war is about to break out in Europe. It feels like
1: 1914.
0: Mm. Um, I'm remembering the book, The Guns of August, by um, Barbara Tuchman, one of my favorite history books, which describes the month in which Europe fell from a heavenly state of peace into a hellish state of war within one month by making one mistake after another. Hmm. Um, nobody. You nobody f- how far?
1: How far away from that do you think we are?
0: I don't think we're going to fall into the pit this time, but I am disgusted by how eager our media is to amplify this. Mm-hmm. I am starting to think, and this is not my main message, but I'd like to know what you think of this, Kuhan. I'm starting to think that our media is is doing the same thing that they famously did in um, when they began weapons the, of mass destruction. The, no, I'm not thinking about Iraq. I'm thinking about the Spanish American War, 120 mm. years ago, 115 years ago, so-called Spanish American War, where um, American newspapers urged urged um, a war against the the spanish in cuba but you're right of course iraq the run-up to iraq well this is what's on my mind and um you know you and i i know that you focus on china so as i said this is nothing new to you we've been doing this we've been provoking and encircling china for a long time and spreading all kinds of hate towards mm. china in our media um what, tell me what you think about all this, and, and what, what as an environmentalist, what what natural balm can you b a l m, not bomb? <laughs> what what you know? What healing words can you offer somebody as stressed out as I am right now? <laughs> how eager our society is to to fall into war, world war.
1: Well, I, I get all my healing bomb, balm b a l m from the people in Jeju Island and looking at the way they handle, because unlike us thin-skinned Americans, the people in Asia have been, they've seen so much war, whether it be Korea or Vietnam or China or all of those places.
0: Um, Do you feel that we are on the brink of a worse war? a war of a global well you know war.
1: i did until a couple of weeks ago when i saw that xi jinping was the keynote speaker at davos
0: tell me about this i don't know the name
1: okay so davos of course is the huge billionaire club
0: um, okay of I, people I that don't know much about run,
1: oh, run the world and they meet in switzerland every so often and we're talking about Bill Gates and all the presidents and they basically construct um, the game plan, the roadmap for how to move forward economically in the I world.
0: This, yes. I, I hope Bill Gates has been disgraced off of it. I mean, I believe he's associated with Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, because
1: of Jeffrey Epstein. Huh. Maybe there is a reason why Jeffrey Epstein was given to us by God, but in <laughs> any on, case, on. um, so for xi jinping the president of china to be the keynote speaker this is the leader who's constructed the current the, you know modern day china that has lifted mm. so many millions of people out of poverty okay. and has modernized in a way that You know, is controversial, but nonetheless has been extremely effective. And now China is wealthier than the United States. And they, it's forecast that by 2030, it will be one and a half times wealthier than the United States. And by that time, we'll just be left in the dust. And of course, that threatens everyone um, in the White House. But I think it's really interesting that on the global stage, when we're talking about the wealthiest, most powerful individuals and entities on the planet, that he was given the podium of keynote speaker. And if that's the case, I'm no longer I'm no longer as fearful as I had that's been. That. So that's about. a positive
0: sign. You're it's
1: positive, but that's- I'll tell you what's not positive and what has been distressing me for the past fifteen or so years when Obama first announced the so called Pacific pivot when w- the United States decided that it would transition all of its military resources from Europe and the Middle East to the Pacific in order to, quote unquote, contain China. And what that is, is the ramping up of so much military practice in our oceans. The environmental impact has been absolutely decimating and continues to be so and continues to accelerate. And what I'm talking about are torpedoes coming out of submarines, drone strikes, um, missiles, bombs being dropped in the ocean, uh, anything, air, just like all out Full spectrum, air, land, space, underwater, detonations, yeah, all over the Pacific, yeah, year round, war games, war games, war games, and the reason for this is on paper, it's like, oh, we want to be pre- military readiness in the event of war with China. So that's why we always have to keep that there. What's really behind it is the continual sales of these high-tech weapons yes, that, re- yes, that yes. require an upgrade every year, right? Just like anybody's computer, just like the, obs- uh, you know, planned obsolescence that's built into our iPhones and laptops. They build it into missiles and torpedoes and drones and uh, the operating devices and you name it, every well-
0: I mean, I agree a thousand percent, you know, this is my field, you know, Mm -hmm. I am a technologist and um, I agree with that. Plus the new field of AI and autonomous weapons is a bonanza for Mm -hmm. technology war profiteers. I sometimes listen to, um, you could call it spy on um, so-called defense industry podcasts. Mm -hmm. And I hear them talk about, you know, the swimming pools they're buying, literally.
1: They're in it for the money, right?
0: Right. This is a force that is propelling us to the brink of war.
1: Yes. That and is it, what is propelling us to the brink of war.
0: Yes. It is not so... Uh, there's a reason I talk about August 1914. In August mm. 1914, the the month that Europe fell into World War One, a war that you could say never ended. Mm-hmm far as I could tell, a war that led to the Russian Revolution, a war that led to World War II, led directly to World War II. Um, that year that month, neither the neither Germany, nor Austria, nor Serbia, nor Russia, nor France, nor England wanted war. None mm-hmm. of them wanted war. However, all of their decision makers were in the grip of normalizing war profiteers who were standing behind the decision to go to war and delivering weapons and not emphasizing the fact that they were taking the the continent towards disaster. And, you know, you know what I'm saying, basically. both I
1: do, and I wasn't aware that war profiteering was so central in the decisions.
0: they literally escalated by sending troops. Germany and Russia sent troops to each other's borders. That was the the match in the powder keg. That was what lit. It. You know, people say that it was the assassination of the Archduke. Yes. That was, no that that was the symbol. It took a month. That's what this book, The Guns of August, by Barbara Tuckman, is about. It's about 1914, where. From the assassination of the archduke, it took about a month for the continent to fall towards war. And what actually triggered it was that Russia sent troops to the border of Germany, and Germany sent troops to the border of Russia. Bingo! Huh. That's what triggered it. And and when each side would hear reports of the other, they would send more troops, and this is what triggered it. And meanwhile, you had the czar. And the Kaiser, who were cousins, I believe, or close relatives and friends, sending letters to each other saying, let's stop this. Let's not let this happen. Now, was
1: it, was it war profiteering on both sides?
0: Honestly, it was drunk driving. This is what, you know, I often use the phrase drunk driving. Nobody was in charge. Yes, it was war, it was war profiteering that brought them to the point that it was so easy to escalate instead of to use diplomacy. You know, if we had more philosophers and less war profiteers, they would have sent peacemakers to the border. Instead, they sent cannons and tanks to the border. Well, I don't think they- Well, what's interesting
1: about the case of the United States visa uh, um, in relation to China and also Russia is that the United States fully, it's about war profiteering we are so hyper-capitalist as opposed to that's not what's behind China and that's not what's behind Russia, but they get sucked in right. by the provocation. Right. And that's why I was asking if to, in the event of World War One, if it was
0: well, um, profiteers
1: yeah. on both sides.
0: I mean, I think what you're pointing to, and I'd like to hear if this is right, is that China and Russia have not been as provocative as the USA has been. In, I in don't the- think
1: they've really been that. Prov- I think that they've been responsive to provocation.
0: I mean, I, w- I definitely agree about China. I would say that many people would point to Ukraine and 2014, the fact that there was a literal, you know, gra- land grab over the Crimea, but I don't want to spend this podcast you know right talking about we both know both sides of this story, um and the fact is it's not worth a world war it's not worth nuclear war right <laughs> yeah. Um, right, yeah.
1: You know what I would like to add on to that regarding all the sales of weapons is that I did read in two Asian countries for these war games. I did read in a Pentagon document that words to the effect, and I can send that link out if anyone's interested to the document for the Indo-Pacific that the best way, what is, the, the the technique of choice for recruiting or for solidifying alliances with other countries in the asia pacific or now the indo-pacific is through weapon sales Mm. we actually said that Oh god wow so so they're continuing they're accelerating and increasing their weapon sales and with every you know several billion dollars of weapon sales that takes place in what more countries and more countries. That means more practicing. So we've got India practicing throughout the Indian Ocean, all the way up to the Sea of Oman. We've got we've got Thailand, Singapore, Philippines, um, Brunei. I mean, all these countries. We are continually selling weapons, selling weapons, telling them that you know there might be a war uh, with China. Um, they don't, of course, want to get caught in the crossfire, but they're buying the weapons every season when the new upgrade's required. They've got to practice the new weapons to be interoperational with one another, you know, because if you have a new, it, it just goes on and on. And it's like this huge marketing of products toward the demise of um, of our oceans. And just just to give you a figure of the scale of the whale genocide is just in yeah. the Mariana Islands alone which is where Guam is. It's the southernmost island in this particular archipelago in the Western Pacific, just that area alone. Uh, the EIS says that they have permission from the federal government um, to be exempt from the Marine Mammal Protection Act up to 400,000 whale deaths over a 5 year period.
0: Oh my god.
1: Which is
0: well, it's, it's a
1: genocide. It's yeah. it's a holocaust. It's a marine yeah. holocaust. And yeah. then of course without whales, we don't have plankton and without plankton, we don't have an ocean that's alive. And a weaponized Pacific we must always remember is a dead Pacific and a dead Pacific is a dead planet because the Pacific provides more oxygen for the planet than all the rainforests of the world combined.
0: Wow. I didn't know that.
1: So I just had to throw that in there. So you people understand the importance, even if we don't go to war with China, this continual war gaming, and that's just for this one archipelago, there's equal Amounts of um, whale deaths going on in the Gulf of Alaska, in the Hawaiian Islands. And those are the places where there's, thank God for Nixon's National Environmental Policy Act that requires Mm -hmm. there to be this some sort of metrics on that because the countries to which we sell all these weapons don't have any environmental standards. They're not keeping track of any of this, of how many coral reefs are getting bombed or getting crunched over by amphibious vehicles, crunching over them onto the beach over and over and over again. That all kills the ocean.
0: I feel very frustrated As a peace activist, that so much of our work, so much of the work that peace organizations do is in the form of we, the people, are asking governments to stop fighting wars and governments are not listening to us. I want it to be we, the people, are stopping wars. In other words, since the governments are not listening to us, at what point do we stop being beholden to these governments? This is, this is a question that, you know, I am, I am admittedly an anarcho pacifist. Basically, I believe in voluntary citizenship, voluntary communities. I'm an open source software developer and I believe in principles of cooperation and voluntary, everything voluntary. Everything open, everything voluntary. That's where I'm from. But I believe that our capitalist you know, authoritarian, corrupt governments have obviously failed us and are all driving drunk towards mm-hmm. a cliff in the back seat. And at what point, you know, do we stop asking governments to stop being drunk drivers? Because you can't really stop being the drunk driver. <laughs> at what point do we grab the wheel, I guess? And I don't mean violence. I don't. I Well, remember,
1: mean- we're the same age about, Right, mm-hmm. Mark, and and remember that slogan. Um, what if there were a war and nobody came? Do you remember right. that when we were kids? Yes. Well, I would I would like riff on something like that. If it were not for the existence of AI, how right. you know? Well, if there were a war nobody came. Isn't that what's being planned with? all of the yeah. robotics and-, and yeah.
0: And also with the economic war, which is sanctions. I mean, let's face it. Right. We are, the United States is currently in a state of war against Venezuela and Iran right. and Cuba. Um, the things we've done and, you know, and, and Palestine and, um,
1: and in a way it's what we do domestically with capitalism.
0: Right. Right. The army is a, is a massive source of employment, um, among white people in the United States. Um, I, I mean, they recruit in every high school. There is a, a outbreak of white nationalism in our armed forces.
1: Wait, wait, wait. I don't know about this because where I come from in the Pacific, we have economic conscription. Pacific Islanders comprise the largest per capita uh, enlistment. Okay. Uh, in the army, and these are people of color who don't even have the right to vote for president, which is the great irony of it. You talk about so in
0: Guam and places like that, where no, they Guam,
1: t- they can, they right, that's right, they can't vote for president in Guam, nor in Samoa, um, nor in the Mariana Islands. So there's the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands as well, mm-hmm. and and yet there's no other economic opportunities supposedly. So they so they join the army and of course that's that's all they're sort of herded into in high school because they've got ROTC right and they just, it's there's just sort of okay what? so
0: at least you're saying there's ethnic diversity there well in i that. don't
1: know that's that's where i come from so it's really interesting from well, to hear from you that this is that conscription is yeah. a euro american phenomenon because that's certainly not been my experience
0: it, it it is here yes and i think it's a well kept secret and i guess the fact that i'm saying it you know in a sort of you know heated voice probably reflects the fact that you know i i do feel that that we are close to chaos civil chaos in the united states and And the fact is we have a very large armed forces and a very large police force. Mm -hmm. um, And and in both cases, there's a whole lot of white nationalism. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: I'll never forget my experience with the activists at Jeju Island. There was one moment where I was in... I had taken the film director, Oliver Stone, to visit an incarcerated peace protester who also happened to be a leading film critic in Korea, and his name is Yang Yoon Mo. Yang Yoon Mo was in prison for many months, possibly years. It wasn't one of those extended, extended, extended. It wasn't a Julian Assange type of thing, but it was. It was oh. a while, and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to bring Oliver Stone to meet him when he comes to Jeju to check out the Navy base? I had hosted him for a weekend there, and I also brought. Um, there is a. There are two brothers in their eighties. They're both priests, um, and they're both named Father Moon, hmm. and and one of the Father Moon brothers, and I don't remember their first names, but we were waiting. So there was Father Moon and me and Oliver Stone, and Father Moon speaks a smattering of English, and we were in the waiting room of the police station of the jail. and And I said to Stone, I said, this is Father Moon, and he was in prison for three years. Because he crossed the DMZ. I think that was back in the 80s. Okay. He has crossed the DMZ because a lot of Koreans feel resentful that there's been this artificially imposed division line that's dividing up the families. And Oliver Stone said, looked at him and he said, Wow, what did that feel like? You must have been extremely angry. And Father Moon got this beatific smile like a Buddha Mm -hmm. on his face. And he said, it's the path to peace. It's Mm -hmm. the path to peace. And it's like, it wasn't even, you know, we in America, we take our material comforts very seriously. And for these peace activists, if they don't have peace or or are not working for peace, that is their discomfort.
0: I believe most peace activists do adopt a sort of minimalist lifestyle, you know, mm. whether they call it Buddhist or minimalist or ecologically, you know, sound or zero waste. Yeah. And it, the lifestyle is a big part of it. And boy, I hate, I hate the material softness of the USA right now. I mm. do think they're o- overconsumption, overpackaging, um, and yeah, anyway, easy to say. Well,
1: let me ask you, Mark, like, because for me, it, and for, for from my experience, it hasn't been like, oh, I'm going to make this big sacrifice because now I'm a peace activist, but it's more like, it just doesn't matter.
0: You know what I mean? No, I don't understand what, what. I mean, that-
1: it's like, do I really need to, um, drive when I can walk or take a bike or take public transit like it's just like I yeah I'll take a. yeah it's like not a big deal like (laughs) or even like unless you're in a really bad horrible prison situation I mean well it's like okay yeah it's uncomfortable but it's more uncomfortable to just live and let some of these injustices go by. That's the great discomfort. Yeah.
0: I sense that you've been a, you've been gradually a peace activist, but you've been conscious your whole life. I would say I've had a few different lifestyles. You know, I've worked for the U.S. federal government, I've worked in very corporate settings. Um, I, I would say that it's more recent in my life that I, I sort of, you know, op- opened my mind to defining myself as an activist and saying, I'm going to make the lifestyle choices that an activist makes. And it sure feels good. Mm, um, that's interesting. So, yeah. What do you think the peace movement can do? That it isn't already doing because we're not doing enough, you know, and this I'm getting this from Extinction Rebellion. When I go to their meetings, they will always have somebody up there saying, hey, people, whatever we're doing, we're not doing enough. You know, that's a
1: great question. And um, I'll tell you one thing. That's so frustrating. Is we're doing less than we've ever done because of this COVID, oh, yeah. and and you know it's just webinars, which is like a surveillance person's delight, right? It's like okay, here's some more information on me. You can take.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: I mean, I mean, um, what do you think? What 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 can we do?
0: Well. I love it that you turned it back on me. I know you're not a huge fan of technology, and I'm I am I think I am more I'm more pro social media than you. I even believe that um, we can use the social media, um, you know, main 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 presences. Even though we know they're run by corrupt capitalists, we can use them to reach people, and we need to reach people. So I think the answer is publishing research. Journalism, investigative journalism. I think the New York Times has completely fallen asleep on the job. Mm-hmm. Fat cats. And I'm here in New York City. So many of my friends are journalists. I've been inside the New York Times so many times. Um, I've worked for media companies. I know where I speak. They are staffed and owned by Ivy League fat cats who golf in Stamford, Connecticut and are not aware of what's going on in the real world. And we need a new kind of journalism. And I feel like the peace movement can provide more of this. I mean, in a way that's what I do the podcast for. This is my little stab at journalism, I guess. What do you think yes, about it? Yes, but if
1: a journalist becomes too effective, like Julian Assange, then we there are many levers now more than ever, especially digital ones, that can algorithm them into <laughs> oblivion.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. In other words, like, I'm playing the social media game, you know, I tweet, and I interact with other people on Twitter. And meanwhile, you know, I may think I'm helping it. But let's face it, my stuff is going into the algorithm meat grinder, and getting served to the people that Twitter wants to serve it to. (laughs) or
1: or 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 if they want to just round file you all together and put you into the i mean that that to me is just so incredibly infuriating and disempowering
0: wait let me say something about that then i'm good Mm. at social media this is Mm -hmm. my job i've been doing this since social media was was invented i've been doing Mm. php longer than mark zuckerberg so i know social media um when you're good at it, you know how to beat the algorithms. So mm-hmm. I, know, I know how to do it. My stuff doesn't get censored. I, nobody blocks me. I've never been kicked off Facebook, never even close. I've never even gotten a warning from Facebook. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm doing. And I reach millions of people and i'm proud of it so you can be okay, good okay
1: good i expect to get lots of emails after this
0: <laughs> well i don't do email that's old school
1: oh yeah i'm i'm very old school like email for me is like cutting edge modern technology
0: well we need you and we need me
1: <laughs> yeah
0: so i'm really curious you mentioned your family's legacy in korea was a Was this in the northern or southern side? I know it was all one country before the United States and Russia drew a line separating the two.
1: Yeah, it was. And and, um, so my father was born on the border of Manchuria, they used to call it. Ah. It's a province in China and Korea. And ironically, or not ironically, coincidentally, he went to the same elementary school as the famous video artist Namjoon Pike, who pronounces wow. his name differently, of the same name. And they I were the same the age and they died the same year, but that's just a total coincidence. But in any case, that was during Japanese occupation that yeah. he was
0: born. Manchuria. Uh-huh, Manchuria it's,
1: it's, was yeah, and 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 Korea was also occupied by Japan. And so there was a lot of um persecution of Christians. And my father's parents had, I don't know, like they had converted to Christianity from Confucianism. And I don't know if they did it because they were quote unquote forward thinking or because it was a haven away from Japanese persecution. Hmm. Um, and so in fact, Pyongyang was called Bethlehem of the East at that time, because there wow. were so many Christian churches there.
0: You're talking about and, the city that became the capital of today's of North
1: Korea. Yeah, and and the when my grandparents were younger, they used to um the Japanese would storm Christian churches and burn them down like a p- pogrom in right. Russia. And and so my family moved to South Korea to uh, escape the persecution of christians by the japanese.
0: So, and so the family was originally in the, in what became the northern part of korea.
1: Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, but then before the korean war they were already in south korea, so they didn't have to escape from south it. korea.
0: Got it. Very very interesting. Um wh- and uh, were they directly involved in the war?
1: Oh yeah. Everyone was. Yeah. I mean, it just flattened the country.
0: Yes, yes.
1: As you know, what is it? More firepower and bomb. conventional bombs were dropped on Korea than during the entire Pacific War outside of Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. Yeah. In fact, when I went to Korea to live in the 60s as a small child, Mm-hmm. Um our house where my grandmother lived she had a it was the only house on the street that hadn't been flattened by the war we, we I was the only one with a house so wow. I would go visit my friends in school and they lived in basically shanties oh, made wow. of old pieces of lumber and and tin and you know no plumbing just dirt floor I was shocked cuz I had come from you know, LA where I where I was like sailing down Sunset Strip with my babysitters in a convertible and going to Malibu and suddenly I was,
0: what a change. I was
1: uh, squatting on a frozen dirt floor
0: mm-hmm. in
1: in um the second most impoverished country on the planet outside of Ghana, according to the a UN report that year.
0: Did you spend much time in Korea?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I spent several years off, like, 1965, well, I was, 64 was the first time I was there just for a visit, and then we went to live there for a year in 65, and then we went back to the States in 66, 67, and then we went back in 69 and 70, and, um, yeah, wow, It it was intense. It was hard to take.
0: I'm sure, I'm sure it helped make you become the person you are today yeah. well it
1: made me appreciate cheju island a lot because mm-hmm. i remember it was very very a lot of gender discrimination and i wasn't used to that from the, coming from the states and i remember i was being really you know like my brash little self i was with my cousin who's a boy and we we were making bows and arrows
0: mm-hmm. out of
1: bamboo And I wanted to do it my way. And he's like, no, that's the wrong way. And finally he goes, you need, he goes, I'm the boy. We're doing it this way. You're a girl. We're not doing it that way. And I'm like, like bullshit. And then he says, you need to go to Jeju Island. That's the Island of Women. Because I learned like that was still a matriarchal society at the time. Shamanistic. And women were in charge. So I always was fascinated by that island. And then when I heard, never even having visited, but I heard many tales of its beauty and its tangerine farms. And my father, who was an attorney, would get these gifts um, of big boxes of tangerines, which was mm-hmm. such a treat because they just, there was a food shortage when we were there. And because there were kind of bribes, it was like a big box of tangerines from Cheju Island, because they are said to have the most delicious tangerines. And you can actually get dried tangerines at Trader Joe's, but that's a different story. And so later, when I heard about them building this terrible Navy base that's there, I was so distraught that I went there to do what I could to support the movement. And to this day, I'm still very involved with the people there. And I'll tell you you know, getting back to what do we have, you know, what principle moral, you know, do I adhere to as a peace activist? And it's like, even in the face of what seems to be defeat, We have one another. We have our solidarity, and it grows stronger with each defeat. And it's really true because even though they did build that navy base, I'm the people there are closer to one another, and I'm closer to them than ever. And we've branched out, and we've got solidarity across the Pacific, and that that is the prize.
0: Yeah, and to bring this all back full circle, part of the tragedy of Korea is that it was caught in the middle between the United States. Russia and China and Japan and it never wanted to I mean I guess at the uh, by the time of the Korean War Japan was was not an independent player anymore but it was caught in the middle between the U- United States, Russia and China and um never wanted needed or deserved the massive destruction that that fell upon it during the 3 years of the Korean War and after and it's still partitioned today And today we are threatening to do the same thing to the country known as Ukraine. Mm
1: -hmm. It's weird because I feel like that was the playbook now for um, world power war is like, we won't get it. We won't get our hands dirty. We'll just put it on this little in-between country. And they say geography is destiny. Couldn't be more true.
0: And how could we not mention the countries of Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan? And now Taiwan. Too. Oh my God. Okay. You know what? I'm going to um, ask you now, Kuhan. Um, this has been a great conversation. You're really great to talk to. Well, it's
1: so fun to talk to you, Mark. Thank you so much for asking me.
0: Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts? Anything else you'd like to say? No. Um, okay. Just thank you. Thank you too, and I'll see you at the next World Beyond War board meeting. Where it's great to, um, you know, you and I are always people who speak up every every month, and that's awesome. Awesome. Uh, Looking
1: forward to it, Mark. Thank you.
0: Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 청천 하늘엔 별도 많고 이내 내
1: 가슴에 수심도 많고
0: Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental
1: impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.